Welcome to HivriaCast, the podcast where I, Alad Nehrai, speak with some fascinating and incredible creative Jews. Hello, welcome to... <laughs> you were just about to say hello. I wasn't going to say anything. You, you were starting to say something. I was not. Okay. <laughs> it's all in your head. <laughs> welcome to HivriaCast. Uh, this is Alad Nehrai and... This is episode. Oh, I forgot. I, I will never remember anymore. I think what twenty four. No, we're way no. past twenty four. No. I think Rivko is twenty five. Thirty three. Thirty. No, I don't think no. we're thirty three. No. But we'll. I don't know. I'll figure it out once I post this. If I post yeah. it, you know. Hopefully, I'll post it. Look at fixed and post. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Um, so this is Hebrea Cast. If you, in case you're wondering who the other person is uh, on the line, <laughs> this is I'm uh, joined by, by Asher Lovey today. Um, Asher, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm sorry, I'm in a wacky mood today. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, it's a, pl- it's a pleasure already. <laughs> um, so, uh, what do I usually do at this point? You know, I've only listened to three of them. <laughs> Take that out. I don't want people knowing. <laughs> um, so what do you what are you up to these days? What do you what do you do? Uh, well, do you, what do you? I guess what do you do during the day? Because uh, you're a man of many uh, many skills. Got a nine to five job managing a website at a women's fashion company, uh, and then the rest of my time is spent running an organization called Zaka, which raises awareness about child sexual abuse in the Orthodox Jewish community. And we're also now getting busy uh, trying to get the Child Victims Act passed up in Albany. Um, And occasionally we organize some educational events around the community so people can know how to keep their kids safe. And you also write about this stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I blog about it. I post on Facebook. I have to maintain my own organization's Facebook page. Uh, Unfortunately, life gives me enough to keep me busy. (laughs) Nice. Um, wow. Okay. So I remember like last time we spoke about Zaka, that, that was like, uh, you were just starting it up and now, like now, like you basically like took it over, right? Like, yeah. So originally it's a funny story, actually. Like originally me and the, the, one of the founders of Zaka, uh, got into a fight about their first action, which was supposed to be about the internet of Sifa. Um, and at, at the time my views on is that specifically Jewish? Is that a sp- like, yeah? Uh-huh, okay. Yeah, uh, we we focus specifically on the Orthodox community. Oh, the Orthodox community. Okay. Yeah. Um, at the time, uh, they were gearing up for their first protest, which was going to be outside the Internet of Sifa. My views on religion were very different back then. Uh, my views on the community were very different back then, and I felt that it was improper to protest something unrelated. Mm. Like there's sexual abuse, and then there's banning the internet, right? right? And I felt that you know a community can have two things in its consciousness at one time without one uh, negating the the other. Um, <clears throat> and I felt that you know just because they're spending all this time and money on protesting the internet, which they viewed as an evil. Um, did not mean that they necessarily saw uh, sexual abuse as a lesser evil, and therefore I didn't see the logic in protesting sexual abuse at an event that had nothing to do with sexual abuse, right? Um, And that was one of the uh, uh, points of friction between me and one of the founding members of Zaka. (coughs) And, uh, yeah, fast forward, I don't know, about five years, 
and I was asked to I was asked to take it over because you know the 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 original founders sort of um, you know no longer had the time to to run the organization to maintain its Facebook page to schedule any more actions and they saw I was getting more active in the field and they you know they wanted to hand it off to somebody who actually cared about the issue enough to do something with with the name that they had built up the reputation that they'd built up and the following that they'd built up on Facebook. So do you feel like are you like you feel has this has this helped you feel empowered like in this in the, in this uh, fight? Yeah, it's definitely given me more of a seat at the table. Oh yeah. Um, like for example, uh, last week I had I had my first meeting ever with a state senator to talk about this. It wasn't one on one. I joined. I was part of a group of people who were there as part of a coalition of organizations and survivors who are lobbying for this Child Victims Act up in, in Albany. But I, I would never have that seat at the table, or it would be harder to get that seat at the table if I didn't have this organization uh, to, you know, to, you know, give me a business card, so to speak, that I could um, have the, I guess, credibility it lends me and the gravitas it lends me. And, you know, one person... Um, generally doesn't mean as much to a movement as an organization does. So, so being given this organization and being asked to take its reins was was definitely uh, was definitely an important factor in my in my ability to advocate for the community that that, that I come from. Well, it's so cool. It's so crazy to me because I just remember, <clears throat> like we've known each other since you were. Wow. Uh, when when we oh, <laughs> I just I just remembered when we first interacted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man. Uh, yeah. So I guess I'll. I mean, now that I like, I have to say it. But uh, we, for anyone listening, basically me, the way me and Asher got connected was I wrote this I, a piece that I now really regret writing. Um, but at, at the time, <laughs> speaking of, speaking of being in a different place, but um, I wrote this piece uh, about modesty about Sneas and. Uh, kind of putting, I don't know what the right way of putting it is, but I, I kind of put it on women as opposed to taking responsibility as a man for it. And I really regret that piece. But at the time, that was actually one of the hardest moments, I think, in my, like, writing life. I think that was one of the hardest moments. And so, uh, like, I was, because I was getting piled on by everyone. I remember actually walking through Crown Heights, and this girl, this woman looks at me, and she goes... She just looks at me for a second. She goes, "Ugh." <laughs> <laughs> that the only time that's ever happened where like you real made life, it. yeah, re- like people had come up to me like before, you know about like, oh I like your writing, but never like just abject disgust <laughs> at me. Um, and, <laughs> and anyway, so I remember being like, okay, it's like that, like I was hoping it would die down, and then this guy. Uh, who shall remain nameless? Asher Lovey. Uh, posted, Names rhyme. His name rhymes with yeah. Smasher. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he posted a what was it? A, oh, because I took it down, right? Yeah. Um, and you posted a uh, internet like archive of it or whatever. Yeah. The from the Wayback Machine on archive.org. It's still there <laughs> if you guys want to look. Right. Uh, thanks. I really appreciate that. Um, <laughs> so, I think I'm gonna nix this listen, podcast. So, someone's gonna someone's gonna dig it up and you're gonna have another friend soon. Yeah, right. Um yeah exactly. <laughs> In six years we'll be talking about it. Um and, 
So I remember I was I got in touch with you. I was like, why did you do that? I obviously like I'm not, you know, um, so it was really interesting. That was how we connected. Right. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. actually interesting because I a lot of the people now, I guess, especially because <laughs> of the, you know, growth or change of me as a Baltruva since then, I've made like a lot of friends, for, ironically from that, like Fremette Goldberger, you mm-hmm. know her? Like she wrote this piece, like just destroying me on the forward. And, um, and we spoke about it like. I don't know, six months later or something. And I was just like, you just I brought it up. Like, just, you know, that really, like, that was really hard for me, the article. And she was like so sweet about it. And we spoke about it and like, now we're friends and hope she comes out of Rioca sometime. Anyway. Yeah, she's a really cool person. Yeah. So I don't know, why am I bringing all this up? Because we were talking about how we met mm-hmm. and it ended up being a whole story. Yeah. But I think my point being that, actually, I was really trying to talk about you, which is that, like, I feel like you've grown so much, like, and done so much since we first met. Like, it's nuts. Like, at that time, you were still living with your mother, right? Yeah, I was still living uh, in my abusive home in Borough Park with my mother and my grandmother. Um, and uh, I was just getting started in activism. And, you know, I, d- I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Wow. So um, you were an activist, like, while <clears throat> you were dealing with that in your life. Yeah. And funny enough, uh, two weeks before, I guess this is going to be the next thing we talk about two weeks before the GoFundMe campaign that you made for me. Um, I wrote an article on my blog, uh, titled something like I'm finally free or something after 20 years, I'm finally free. I remember that. Yeah. And then two weeks later I wasn't, but because they had taken your mother, I think like two was that what it was? They had taken her. And that was the problem that then she came back. Two weeks yeah. Later. That no one warned me that, that, that she was coming back. So I ran. Yeah. 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 So, so, so I was already involved in, in activism from when I was, um, I'd started writing about it when I think I was 19. I wrote an article for Ami magazine that got published in. Really? And, uh, like at that point it was kind of, it was, there, there were two things that, that got me into activism. One was, when I wrote that article, I was going to write it with my Ferrami. real name, Ferrami Magazine. I was going to write it with my real name. I gave my grandmother a copy of it. My mother at the time, I believe, was hospitalized when I wrote the, the article. So it was just me and my grandmother in the house. And she read, she read it. And first she tried to convince me not to publish it at all. Um, and, uh, you know, I told her what was, what was it about? Oh, the article was just about, about, you know, what was happening in, in my home, like about my mother's mental illness and about oh, how, wow. you know, she was abusing me and how her mental illness was just, you know, how she decompensated and how she kept on getting worse and how she became more abusive. And I, I just, I, I put it into an article and I thought that the Jewish community should read it and take mental illness seriously. Like if it, if it goes untreated, yeah. this is what could happen to somebody. Right? So it was like meant to be like a mental <clears throat> illness post as opposed to a, an abuse post. Yeah. That's a, that, that's the perspective I took when I started was that, was that really the problem was mental illness, not, not abuse because I felt at the time that, um, you know, that the, what was happening to me was the result of untreated mental illness rather than, you know, the story was untreated mental illness rather than the story being abuse. Right. So I wrote this article for that, that ended up being published in AMI about mental illness and how the fact that it was untreated, uh, led to me being abused. And my grandmother, after begging me not to write it at all or publish it at all, she agreed to let me publish it. Not that she really had much of a say in it, but she begged me, 
um, she begged me not to put my name on it because um, she, she, you know, she had concern for my shidduch prospects. Um, and I thought about it, you know, when she mentioned it, I hadn't considered that. Oh, yeah. And she, you know, she's telling me you're never going to get married like this if you put your name on it. And just like right then I decided I don't care. Oh, I'll, oh fi- really? I'll figure it out myself. You know, I'll meet somebody on my own. I, I, and I, I hadn't gotten any dates at that point. You know, I hadn't <clears throat> so much as had a conversation with a girl at that point, but I decided right, right then I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm publishing this anyway. Wow. And then she asked me, um, to keep my name off it for my cousin's sake. And I have, a, I had a lot of cousins of marriageable age at that point. And that guilt got to me mm. and I decided to take my real name off it. Um, and they, 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 they published under a pseudonym. And after they published, there was something lacking about it. Like, uh, it didn't feel like my story. It didn't feel like I had said anything, you know? Because it, your name wasn't on it. Because my name wasn't on it. It didn't mean anything. Wow. It was somebody else's story, right? So I decided right then I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write, like, a memoir about it. I'm, like, 20 years old. I'm going to write a memoir, right? Yeah. And it was right around November um, I think the article got published in Ami in April. I decided to write the novel in like August or something. And then in November, it was National Novel Writing Month, right, NaNoWriMo. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to do a novel because I had tried that the previous year and, <laughs> and learned that I'm terrible at fiction writing. Um, I'm so ashamed of it. It's, it's buried, buried somewhere. One day when I'm famous and I could get away with this stuff, you know. Um, but for now, the world is not going to see that. It was, it was a disaster. But Have you ever heard of the idea of a growth mindset? Yeah. I, I think you wrote a blog post about it. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote it for you, I think. <laughs> I'm oh, saying, okay. Now I feel that I wrote it. For oh, okay. Because yeah, you well. like you might have been quote unquote terrible. That's I'm using <clears throat> scare quotes. But um, anyway, just, yeah, uh, I I still don't do fiction. I know. Um, I'm saying, but what if you did? Uh, that's not that's not a road I'm going down anytime <laughs> soon. So maybe you want to rededicate your blog post uh, to somebody else. But um, right. I, I I figured you know what I, I could benefit from from just being around other people who are writing. And I I cranked out. I I, did, I barely ate. I barely slept. I I spent every waking moment that I had free writing. Um, and in 20 days, I had written 50,000 words. Oh wow! And you know, I I went to a Kinkos. At the time, I think that's what the FedEx stores were called. And uh, I paid, I think, like 20-something dollars to have it printed and spiral-bound. And I held the thing in my hand, and I looked down at it, and it had the title, and it had my name, and it was bound, and it was ready to go to some publisher in my mind, right? Um, and and uh, I had this really, really weird mix of emotions. Uh, on the one hand, I was ecstatic that it was finished, you know, because it had taken so much out of me. And on the other hand, I didn't know what else to live for. My life, my life was the, the purpose of my life at the time was to write this book, right? And now it's written. And what happens if it doesn't get published? You know, the Ami article got published, but what if this book does not get published? And my whole reason for living means absolutely nothing. And that night I, I, you know, went to, I was taking the train home. I'm standing there at the train. And as it's coming, I'm debating whether I should jump in front of it or whether, you know, I should get on, go home and celebrate the fact that I just accomplished something great. 
I, I wasn't sure what to do with myself. And then two <coughs> days later, like, um, like, like you were seriously considering <coughs> like jumping in front of it or you were just like, yeah, it wasn't just like a, Hey, what if, you know, it was, it was like, really, maybe this is the best thing I could do right now. Take this book in my hand, jump in front of the train and, you know, wow. and that's it. Because you felt like you were just, that was it. You just, because I was still suffering, right? I was still living in an abusive home and the only purpose I felt was I, I just, the story needed to get out of me and it did. It was here in this book, right? But there was no guarantee that that book would ever be published. And that only hit me once I'd finished writing it and once I'd spiral bound it, you know, once it was something real that could be rejected by a publisher, you know, the thought that all of my work had been for nothing, that my story might not reach an an audience that everything that happened to me might be for absolutely nothing. Just, you know, I, again, I wasn't sure whether to celebrate that I had finished this or whether to, you know, throw myself in front of a train. Cause what's the point? And how much like did the fact that abuse was still going on, do you think like affect that, that worry, I guess, I mean, the worry is the biggest understatement ever, but like <laughs> concern that you wouldn't be published, you know, like, <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, uh, that was definitely a part of it. I mean, I could say now I now I have a pretty good life. And, you know, if one of my articles doesn't get picked up, I, I've got a hard drive full of dead articles that are never going to see the light of day. And it doesn't bother me, you know. But at the time, that's that's all I lived for was to tell my story because what else did I have? Mm-hmm. Every, every, every night when I came home from writing, I walked back into an abusive home. And the only thing that that made it worth it, the only way that I could, you know tell myself that it was worth hanging on was that the next day I could go and write some more of my story. But then there was nothing left. And then two days later, um, I got a message out of the blue on the NaNoWriMo website. There's a, um, an insight messaging uh, uh, function where you can message other writers who are signed up on the forum. And <clears throat> this girl just reached out to me and she saw a blurb on my bio about what I was writing and why I was writing it. Um, and I think I had included a very small ac- excerpt. And um, she, she, she told me that, that when she saw what I was writing, that it meant the world to her. Um, and that she was really happy that somebody else was writing about it and that we had similar stories. And she proceeded to send me pages and pages of the story of her life. And we spoke for... Um, a few weeks after that on Skype and just, you know, she kept telling me that the fact I was writing about it, like meant something that it meant something to her that somebody else was actually externalizing the pain that she was feeling, that somebody was explaining to, to the world, you know, what people like us were going through. Wow. And that, you know, it didn't matter. The manuscript didn't matter anymore, you know, because it wasn't, it wasn't whether it got published or not that mattered. It it wasn't the audience that mattered. It wasn't like the magnitude of the work that mattered. Mm -hmm. It was the fact that there was one person out there who read something I wrote, right? (laughs) It was like an excerpt you're saying. Yeah. And it meant something to her, right? That's amazing. And I ended up throwing that manuscript in the garbage later on. (laughs) Wow. Are you serious? Yeah. Because a year later, you know, uh, I I was, I, I was advised, um, uh, by a writing teacher that, that I had. I took a class shortly after I wrote this because I wanted to get better. 
And one of the pieces of advice was, um, before you send it in, because you're going to think that what you wrote is the bee's knees right after you finish writing it, right? Um, sit on it, wait like a half a year, come back to it and revise it. And if it feels right, then send it off, right? And uh, I did. And when I came back to it, it didn't feel like the right story anymore, um, mainly because that story, the book, was <clears throat> a continuation of that AMI article, effectively, you know, where, where the story was mental illness un untreated. And uh, when I came back to, to my manuscript, I felt that the story had shifted to abuse. Oh, wow. Um, so I, I, I no longer felt connected to it, so I didn't end up using it. But what that girl gave me was a drive to be more active in telling my story to, you know, to get involved in, in the cause in any way I could. And at the time it wasn't much, it really was just a lot of Facebook posting. Um, and, you know, just talking to various other activists about it, seeing if I could help out. I think I went to some protests at the time, you know, I, there was no leadership role in it for me. I just wanted to be there. And, um, and, and, and that grew into, you know, into the activism that I'm engaged in today, which may, you know, I, I may be part of something that, 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 that actually makes a difference if we get this bill passed up in, in, in Albany. Um, wow. and, yeah. And it's, a, so those were the two things that, that, that really got me into it. Wow. I mean, you know, it's so interesting because I always have this feeling about you that you have like this artist soul. Like I, <clears throat> it's just something that, it's funny because, like, you know, so you'll go into like uh, bouts of writing and, and not writing and, and things like that. And we, we've we've talked about this mm -hmm. before, and um, I'll, be, I'll be perfectly honest: life being hard is fantastic for writing. Life <laughs> being easier stinks for writing. Oh, I have so many opinions on that. I'm not going to get into that <laughs> right this second, but I do think what's fascinating about that about that story is just how, like. I guess my point being like, even when you're not writing, I see you as an artist. And I think that like, that's my point is that like, um, you know, a lot of people look at creativity and artistry and these sorts of things as like self-contained and something that's like that. And they're like, and, and especially if like a writer becomes, let's say political or let's say, you know, or activist or whatever, uh, then just a lot of people tend to think like that hurts the purity of the art. Um, and a lot of people also think an activist is just an act, like they're an activist and they, they're a professional activist or however people think of it. Um, I'm still waiting on my Soros check. <laughs> right. Um, so, yeah. And the, we're looking for, waiting for the elders of Zion to hook us up. But, uh, yeah, so I think um, what's interesting to me about your story is how the two are so in intimately connected. Like, you writing a memoir and then someone reading an excerpt of your memoir is what led you to being an activist because you saw like the, the power of being able to affect people personally. Like, and that's why I, I, I think, I think that's such a, like, I personally think it's a mistake to see them activism and art, arts and creativity as like these separate worlds because it's so clear. Like the story like that is like, you literally wouldn't be an activist without art, right? Um, yeah. I mean, that's just crazy to me. And I think also, it's just so interesting also how you're saying, describing how, first of all, like that you, like it was, I, I know I know that in the like the end of the story, you kind of felt like a letdown, but during the time that you were writing, it kind of helped you feel like have a purpose in mm -hmm. life. Almost like you could, 
And and I think what's even more interesting is that this person who reached out to you, she also like needed that lifeline, you know? Um, yeah. I have no question, but I do find all of that stories. I just feel like that story is so rich, you know, with ideas. That's so fascinating. I also hope you write more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, um, maybe I'll dig into the the graveyard. Now, yeah. I, I I have stuff. Um, I mean, this is an example of like activism getting in in the way of art. You know, I have right. I have a piece that I uh, that I started working on. I was at a um, a photo shoot for the fashion company whose website I run uh, in, in Brooklyn Bridge Park, right? And I was the guy who was tasked with watching the truck that we were using as a changing room for the models. So they're all off doing a photo shoot in Brooklyn Bridge Park, and I'm sitting there in the truck, and there's no Wi-Fi, and I don't have f- cell reception for some reason. Mm-hmm. But I had my laptop w- with me, and it was fully charged. So I, I, I opened it up, and I started, I started writing a, a piece because it was the first time that I truly had nothing else to do, <laughs> you know? And I, I, I sat there, and I started writing it, and, and uh, it's most of the way done. And I've been consciously... Oh, this was recent? Yeah, I've, I've been consciously thinking about getting back to it, and I just never seem to have the time, especially now that, you know, the busiest time of the year for an activist in the field of child sexual abuse activism is... Uh, the beginning of the legislative session in New York because we've been trying to get this Child Victims Act passed for 12 years and we haven't been able to, but, you know, we build on the momentum of each previous year. But January 3rd is the first day of the the session. So, you know, in the buildup, in the, you know, weeks building up to it, I have no time. So I've been juggling my job and I've been juggling all the responsibilities that my activism puts on me. And uh, this piece has been sitting, you know, in my in my OneDrive and just not getting any attention. Um, yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, but it's interesting because you, at the end, and that's also, I guess, part of my point as well. Is like even when you're not writing, <clears throat> you're doing what a lot an artist does a lot. Like you're affecting people personally. You're speaking. You're, you know, you're you're bringing people together. Like I, I to me, a lot of that strikes a, a chord in me as an, as an artist, you know, not like, I don't know, I guess it's just like, to me that the line is a little gray. Like, yes, writing is, is like a more pure form of it, I guess. But Well, I'll be honest. One of the, <laughs> one of the best things for, for the, my creative part, you know, um, is your Febrengans. Oh yeah. Actually. Yeah. Because it's, like the one time where I'm not supposed to be on my phone, right? <clears throat> so funny. I'm not supposed to be on my phone, but but um, I'm also expected to have something to present, but I also generally don't have time to prepare anything beforehand. And unless I'm just going to give you an angsty rant, you know, about God or whatever is making me feel angsty that day. It's been done. Uh, yeah, it's been done several times. You know, it's my, it's my standby. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll sit there in... Think about this has happened like a few times. Like you know, I've I've told you at, at the Fabrengans, like someone else will say something that just kicks an idea loose, yeah. And then I'll start thinking about it, and you know, I'm, I'm, whether I write it down or not, you know, some, sometimes I'll pull my phone out and write an article on the spot. Like I'll take an, I'll take an hour out of the Fabrengan to just like crank out an art, you know, like a fully fleshed out idea or a fully fleshed out story or whatever. Um, but sometimes it's just like the, the germ of an idea, uh, and I'll file it away for later. You know, like I'll come up with, um, I'll come up with the, uh, with the lead, 
Mm-hmm. I'll come up with the first couple of sentences, or I'll come up with a central idea around which the rest of the article is going to be built. Yeah. Um, and then later on, you know, I'll be thinking about it somewhere else. And if I happen to have time, when it pops back into my head, I'll write it. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's your your febrangans are fantastic for creative inspiration, particularly particularly the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. Uh, for anyone listening, is not where like a febrangan is. Uh, it's like a place. It's generally like a gathering of Hasidim. They get together, and drink, <laughs> and uh, and eat, and and sit around a table and talk about like spiritual concepts. Um, but what I've started doing in my home for a while now is these things called creative fabringens, which are kind of a mix of an open mic and a fabringen, uh, which is what Ash was referring to. And, and, and we have like a few rules and one of them is you can't have a phone out. And I guess Asher breaks that rule <laughs> regularly, but it's funny because I, I, uh, I always joke that all the rules were made because of me. So, cause it was R- Rivka mentioned me once like, oh, do you have to stop taking your phone out so much. And I was like, you're right. Um, but anyway, yeah. So, so actually, and, and I think that's, that, that's interesting. Cause I think, um, that's why I don't totally buy that concept that your life has to be bad for creativity to flourish. Like, because I do think that, uh, it is conducive to creativity, having <clears throat> a, a crappy life or dealing with crappy things in your life. It makes the material easier to draw on. I guess so. Yeah, I mean, you have drama, like you have yeah. dr- dramatic things, right? Which are kind of they become stories. They have conflict and mm-hmm. and whatever. But I think like what's interesting as well, like one of the ideas behind the creative fabrengans, um, and in general, like any creative get together, like I think um, that people do, uh, is that we w- that a big part of activating like that creative spark within us is feeling actually feeling safe and feeling uh, comfortable and feeling like you can let loose and feeling like letting your brain make connections it doesn't usually make, which is actually the drinking (laughs) helps. But like, and that's why, you know, you know, you hear about, like, I'm not uh, condoning it, but I think like, that's why a lot of artist communities, you hear about like pot smoking, these sorts of, like, it's, it's just like this, it's all communal essentially. And I think like, I guess that's also why I was thinking of your activism as well as creative, because it's like there's so much connection between community and artistry. And I think I, I think the reason my my opinion is this, is that the negative and I'm sure you're very interested, <laughs> is that the reason negativity helps is because it's easy. It's easier to, to draw on creativity when you feel alone, mm-hmm. like in the sense that if you feel alone, like then you don't have you you don't have that outside inspiration like coming from connections and people and support that a, like a healthy right. artist i think has and so then you need something to draw on and it usually tends to be negativity i think yeah no it, it's as you're saying that you know it it, it knocked something loose um <laughs> here we go you know like you want to write on your phone for an hour oh no, yeah yeah <laughs> no phones during the podcast right um <laughs> No, I, I was thinking about it. You know, uh, I had a hard time when I first moved uh, to Linden, where I live now. Um, life's pretty good there. Uh, I had a hard time. Did great did, things. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't write much. I also didn't attend your Fabrengans much, but um, there was probably a correlation there. But <laughs> I think that that the types of things that I write about when I do write are different now that life's good. 
Right. Um, That's interesting. Like it may be influenced by uh, by you know the negativity I've suffered in in, in, in you know in my younger years, um, but. Um, like, for example, there was this one piece that I wrote at, at your house um, about the Pulaski Skyway. Uh, and uh, I was sitting next to, uh, next to this girl from Chicago, and she was talking about Chicago. And it's got me thinking about, you know, the road trips I used to take when, um, you know, back when I was still living in, in, in my abusive home, one of the, I guess, incidental benefits uh, was that I didn't have to pay rent. So I had money to go on road trips more often. I would go visit this this friend of mine in Chicago. And, uh, you know, it just, her talking about it, about, you know, her life in, in Chicago, I'm sitting there thinking about, in Chicago, my trips to Chicago, Chicago, Chicago. Oh, the road trips to Chicago. And I wrote this article about how I used to feel every time I took a road trip to Chicago and drove over the Pulaski Skyway about how leaving New Jersey, you know, leaving the East Coast, leaving the tri-state area, you know, um, to me symbolized at least a temporary freedom, you know, and all the excitement that came along with it. I think the reason I love the Skyway is because it's so high up. Uh, and when you're driving it at, at, at night, um, the Skyway is not a particularly nice structure, but if you don't have to look at it because it's dark outside, you know, yeah. uh, then the water you're driving over looks really nice. Yeah. And there, and there's a sense of like, you know, wonder and possibility driving over it. And then the end of the, uh, of the article, of course, because, you know, I grew up Litvish, uh, ended with coming back and, you know, how all the negativity would, would return. But at least, you know, during the you know, the drive out and however long I used to stay, which was usually around three weeks, you know, I, I would, I would have this, this fantastic freedom where I could just, you know, be myself without having to worry about my safety wow. and what the Pulaski Skyway symbolized. Yeah. Wow. That is awesome. You know, it's interesting. It reminds me of, I was, um, I had this friend in college. This was before I was like, I was just like starting any creative stuff in my like I just only realized relatively recently at that time that I like loved writing but um I remember my roommate was and he ended up actually being the photographer my what for my wedding so he's a photographer and he had I remember the reason I asked him to cover my weddings is he had some amazing photographs like of like crazy events like he had gone he he had done a lot of journalistic stuff so it was like really like dramatic like powerful um, and I mentioned that to him once and I was just like, it was so beautiful, you know, like it's so powerful that the stuff he did. And he's like, yeah, but you know, like the truth is that that is the stuff that takes the least amount of artistry. Like the stuff that like a photographer, like the way a photographer <clears throat> like can really show their skill, um, as a photographer is when they can find beauty in like small things like, and, mm. and in the details in life, you know, um, and, and not have to, cause like an overdramatic, really powerful, crazy experience is actually, it's relatively easy to take an awesome photograph right. because it's like, there's crazy stuff going on. Right. But to be able to notice like the small things in our lives or in front of us, um, in the case of a photographer, uh, is like, that requires like kind of thoughtful contemplation it requires like, a, a next level maybe of, of ability. It's less reactive also because it's more like, you know, you have to kind of uh, come up with it, like uh, from within as opposed to 
like it's something happening to you and you're reacting to it as an artist. Now, which I don't want to take away the value of that. I'm just saying that I thought I, I and I remember that stuck with me like so much because at the time I was just like, wow, I never thought about it like that. But it makes sense, you know. And ever since then, I, I think it, it really affects the way I look at creativity. Yeah, it's like looking at, I mean, I, I remember getting that feeling when I started doing writing classes. So I took classes in creative nonfiction mm-hmm. and we had these writing prompts and they were stupid, you know? <laughs> they were just the dumbest writing prompts. Like what? Like what do you mean? I don't remember them, but like... I think it Oh, right. Oh, yeah. No, the first one, actually, the first one I, I remember, write about the significance of your name. Okay. I don't know what the significance of my name is. <laughs> I mean, it represents me to the world, but like that's not what the teacher was asking for. Mm. Um I think she was asking for the significance of of why you were named that and you know what historical meaning your name might have and I I like I had never considered it before. Mm. You know, I I knew It's an interesting writing prompt. I've never heard that yeah. before. I I knew um you know the name came from somewhere. I knew who the person was who my name came from. I knew some facts about his life. But it had never occurred to me to think about the significance of the fact that I was named after him, you know. But I, I cranked out 500 words on the spot, you know, oh, yeah. because the, 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 the idea was um, take something mundane and simple and maybe stupid and just approach it at an angle that makes it interesting. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that was the point of the exercise. Come up with something that makes this mundane, stupid thing interesting. Wow. And, you know, that was pretty much the rest of the writing class. Like, you know, pick five verbs, five nouns, and five something or other and turn them into, like, the longest sentence that you could possibly think of. Oh, oh yeah. It was, it was, it was look around the, the room, uh, pick five nouns, turn it into a simple sentence, mm-hmm. and then turn it into a complex sentence with all sorts of subordinate clauses and, <laughs> you know, and semicolons and colons and whatever and... M dashes and stuff and just make it as big as possible, but in one sentence and it all has to, to cohere. And it was a really in- interesting writing prompt because like if I look around this room, there's a hanger, there's a bookshelf, there's a, a plastic bottle, there's a phone and there's some earbuds, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I think the, you know, all of those are mundane items, but when I had to do that prompt, it would, you know, make me, uh, it would make me come up with all these like, worlds that these objects live in like you know how does the water bottle feel about the fact that it's sitting there on that table you know <laughs> because you have to come up with absurdities to stretch the subject to a hundred words wow. for one sentence so you know that the what you're describing about the photographer having to find you know something yeah. that has to come from within yeah I, I i see that that's so interesting you know i do that um Confronting your fear to access your creativity. Mm-hmm. Did I tell you about that? Uh, it's this class I run, and um, I do like a, a number of writing prompts to get people to like open up creatively, like express things that they're afraid of expressing. But the first one I do is kind of it seems like kind of like a joke at the beginning. It's like write. People have to write something bad, um, and I got the idea from this book. If you want to write, which I mentioned a million times on this podcast, but. Um, she says, like, if you think that you don't have, like, a divine spark in you, I mean, it's amazing because it's this Christian woman, but or she was kind of like a beatnik as well. She was, like, super awesome. It was written in the 30s. 
Um, everyone, I can't, if anyone listens to this podcast regularly, which I'm sure is not a huge amount of people, but like if I apologize for bringing this up again, but first time um, I'm hearing it. <laughs> so there you go. Um, so she, uh, so she says that, yeah. So like, if you think you don't have a d- divine spark and like you're writing and that you're not like a unique soul and all these things and try to write something bad, like it'll be almost impossible. And I love doing this exercise and it's so funny because First of all, people are very funny when they do it, but like, mm-hmm. wow, you know, because it's, how do you write something bad? Like you have to find, like, and I tell them like, you failed if you didn't write something bad. That's like my, my joke, right. you know? And, and it's, and then you see like, whenever they share, everyone loves it. Like they, it, there is like an acknowledgement that whatever, it's not maybe what they would normally write, mm-hmm. but it, there is something magical about their writing. And I think what that does, I, I was trying to think about like, besides the fact that, yeah, it proves like that people have a unique spark and all, and all these things. I, I really do believe that. I think one of the other psychological elements that happens is that the person doesn't feel the pressure that they normally do of writing, where, like, the, one of the biggest pressures a writer feels, especially if they're beginning, is, like, feeling like, is this good, you know? And so they're yeah. fe- thinking that as they write, and they're like, is this good, is this good, is this good? And so we have, like, this kind of, I don't know, um, this this thing coming down on us and um, and again, I think that kind of, kind of to me, it's like speaks to this this idea of like, yeah, starting to learn how to let your mind like loose and mm-hmm. let it explore and let it have fun, you know. I mean, which is interesting because my writing kind of intense, but I think <laughs> I think that that ultimately, like, that's kind of the that has to be the core. I, I feel like it has to be the core of it, like a feeling of comfort. Yeah. Know? No, there's a there, there's that one of the, the the ways like you know I got myself to write about certain things because the the hardest thing for for me is to open an article to the first couple of sentences is right. the hardest like because right. it it determines the entire angle right. uh, the entire tone of the article right so one of the prompts that I got from or one of the ideas that I got from that teacher was just if you can't figure out how to write your 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 lead right just write anything uh, write about right. how you can't write your lead yeah, right yeah, yeah. so you know I'd get up in the morning you know i'd go to starbucks or whatever and yeah. sit there and be like can't think of anything can't think <laughs> of anything all right <laughs> So I woke up today and I told myself that I was going to go write something right <laughs> but like I can't think of any way to start this freaking article, right? I mean, I went to Starbucks and it takes me about 45 minutes to get there in the morning, right? And forget about it. The train was late today and it's really cold and the platform is above ground because whatever. And I I just like, it's it's been a rough day. And I'm sitting here, you know, like, thank God I got a couch today. I really like the green ones, you know, like there are two types of couches in the Starbucks. There's the green ones and the brown ones. And I really, really like it. And I, I, you know, I, uh, I got my favorite green one and, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm trying to come up with a damn lead to, to, to this article and I just can't, I guess the hardest part is that, you know, there's so much complexity to this topic that I'm going to write about. And like, I mean, here's the thing, right? I, I'm not sure whether I should start like this or like this. And then I would write both out. Right. Oh, wow. And what would end up happening is that over the course of doing that, you know, of that whole monologue, you know, mm-hmm. before, was that at some point something usable yeah. would come out of it, right? 
And I'd look at it and be like, all right, everything from this point on, I'd, I'd, I'd highlight everything from that sentence up and hit the delete button. And right there's the article, you know? Yeah. And it was, it was like, and some of it was really, really serious, but it was about like finding that absurdity, that like, that like raw creativity that, you know, that I think people experience when they daydream or when they just, you know, yeah. they just goof around with their friends or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I love that. It's so funny, you know, I actually heard this advice once that, like, writers should always cut, like, the beginning and the ends of their pieces. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how blanket that statement is, but I do think there's something, especially the idea of the beginning, because even when a person knows what they're going to write about, I, I've noticed this, especially as someone who is now, like, an editor, I've noticed that by far the biggest, uh, bes- besides, um, yeah, like, in terms of just, tech- like, like just straight up editing, it always seems to me like the beginning of a piece is the most uh, rough, the roughest patch because mm-hmm. the person's like getting into it. Right? It makes sense. Like they're taking, it takes time to get into something. So, so what's interesting is you're kind of like you, you write your teacher gave you great. I think it's like awesome advice, which was like kind of own that and just be like cool with it and just be like, yeah, the beginning's just probably going to get deleted. Like mm-hmm. that's cool. Yeah, you know, um, yeah, that's so cool. I love that. So. And I managed to write a lot of stuff like that. That's so cool. Yeah. Very interesting. I have nothing else to talk about. What do you have to talk about? What's on your mind? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) Karl Bach. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, we could talk about that. Yeah, We talked about it at the last... uh, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna get typecast as the Karlbach podcast. Well, it's actually interesting because we've had now this is like three in a row of like where we've had and it just not purposefully at all. We just had like the abuse topics come up. So, yeah, and then we've Karlbach uh, sandwiched in there or whatever. But yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, before yeah. we jump into that, I think what's also interesting is that we. Part is it is it okay if I talk about Hevria book? Is sure. That, yeah. All right. So part of what happened with the John Madoff Hevria cast episode was this was two episodes ago. If you haven't heard it, um, highly recommend it. <laughs> um, but what happened was we had had this huge debate within the Hevria Facebook group um, called Hevria Book, where uh, we were talking about Karl Bach's music, whether it should be accepted or rejected, and obviously you were a big voice in this. You and you've been a big voice about Karl Bach for a while. Because you you were the one that wrote that like really um, this article I mean got super spread around which was two of them yeah. two of them but I mean obviously both of them were incredibly powerful but I think the fact that you actually spoke to was it fifteen people yeah. fifteen accusers yeah so I think that was mind blowing um, but I think and it obviously informed the discussion that you had. Um, Discussion's a very nice way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, well, I if think anyone doesn't know, when Elad was ranting about this guy who just was getting very emotional in the last podcast yeah, on the Rebook thread, I'm the guy he was talking about. <laughs> um, no, but I'm saying that was that was actually really powerful because that discussion is why we had that discu- that second discussion. Like, I don't know if I would have had the guts to to bring it up, mm-hmm. like. Um, if that hadn't happened. And I'm actually really grateful for that because I was just like, okay, we just had this discussion. There's no way I can ignore this, this other, like, you know, bringing this up now. And anyway, so my point being, um, I just wanted to give people context, to understand like your stake in this. Cause it's pretty like, you've been a really vocal yeah. person in this regard. 
So actually, if we're going to talk about my, my stake in this, um, there's more to it. Um, the people don't get the impression when they read the articles that I've written about Karlbach that I was actually a tremendous fan of Shlomo Karlbach. Oh, really? I had his entire music collection on my computer. I had a whole bunch of it on, on cassette. Um, I would listen to to his music every Matzah Shabbos for hours and hours, and I would listen to his stories, and I would long for the Judaism that he represented. And there, there's this one story that that really, to me, made me fall in love with Shlomo Karlbach. Um, there's a story about him at an airport and he runs into this guy who's not a fan of his and, uh, uh, he sees, uh, Shlomo Karlbach without a yarmulke on. And what he doesn't know is that a few hours prior, Shlomo was in the airport, uh, and ran into an irreligious guy who was not wearing a yarmulke. And he started talking to him because he saw he was Jewish. And at the end of their conversation, he took, he took his yarmulke off and handed it to the guy yeah. who put it on. And the guy walked away. So when this guy, this detractor of his, started you know, giving him guff about not wearing a yarmulke, he said, listen, I'm, I'm doing more to bring people back to Yiddishkeit without my yarmulke on than you are with yours. <laughs> oh, you know? well. And to me, that, that, that symbolized... Like that, that, that was, that made me fall in love with Shlomo Karabach. When I heard that story, it represented to me a Judaism that was like inclusive. It was a Judaism of love. It wasn't a Judaism of fear. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the Judaism that blamed me for being abused. You know, it's the Judaism that, that would have, you know, accepted what was, you know, would have believed what was happening to me and would have done something about it. You know, that, 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 that wouldn't have marginalized me or told me that my shidduch prospects were in the toilet now because I was writing about it. That, that, that's what I loved about Shlomo Karlbach. And I, 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 I have, I mean, now that I've stopped listening to his music, I have, you know, a, a very um, uh, encyclopedic is a little braggy, but um, I have a, a, a vast knowledge of his music. I, I, I know, I've listened to a lot of his music. So I know which songs not to sing. Um, but at the time, you know, his, his, his music was, was just, it's kind of didn't for me, uh, you know, on Shabbos, when I started doing Kabbalah Shabbos in shul, to be able to sing Karla Bach's tunes, to be able to sing Mizma Shirley Yom Shabbos, you know, you know, and, and, and sort of channel his emotion that you could hear coming through when he sang it on his tapes, you know, on the music that I had stored on my computer. It was incredible. You know, I, I, I remember when I was working at the, uh, I worked at a driving school for, for quite a long time. Um, on Friday afternoons, after I would drop off the students uh, that I had taken to a road test, I would turn on, there's a Jewish radio station uh, that's local in New York City, and they'd play Shlomo Karlbach every afternoon. And I, I remember, like, you know, I would tear up when, when, he, start, when, when he started telling stories, uh, you know, and, and when certain songs came on the radio. You know, like when Bowie Bishalom came on the radio, it just it it would break me down because it was so beautiful. I, I loved the message and I loved the music and I loved the fact that it brought people together. There was this uh, at my shul, the Young Israel Bethel Bar Park. There was this event that they would do every year, a Karlbach Shabbos. And the first year I heard of it, I, I had to go. 
you know, and I, I hadn't dove in there that Friday night. I was in a different shul. Somebody mentioned that it was happening and that it would be going on for hours. So I, after davening finished in the shul I was in, I rushed over to Young Israel um, and I tried getting in, but it was so packed that they had uh, posted people at the doors to prevent more people from walking in. So I stood there at the door outside. The door was closed. I stood there looking through it. So, I, and you know, with, with like one ear pressed against it, so I could catch the strains of Chazan Ben Sion Miller singing Karlbach along with a thousand other people in that shul. And it was magical to me. And every single year, it was magical. So when, so when, you know, when I became aware of these allegations and when I, you know, investigated it subsequent to my first article that I wrote, which just expressed the conflict that I felt about loving his, his music and knowing about these allegations after interviewing all those women and deciding that I can no longer listen to his music again, it, it wasn't like my stake wasn't just that I, uh, had interviewed these women and I was an activist and I was a victim of, of abuse. Also, I was also somebody who was losing a, a very significant part of myself, a, a significant coping mechanism too, because Karl Bach music kept me going and I had to give it up. Um, well, so yeah. it was like when you were most like a fan of his kind of that happened. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, his, his, his stuff, his music and him as a person was what I looked to for inspiration. Right. It's what it's what I looked to, to to model the ideal that I had for Judaism after, and I, I had to give it up. Um, so I don't think people understand that when when you know they see me criticizing article uh, uh, criticizing Karl Bach in various articles or on Facebook posts, they don't get that whatever they're feeling, whatever loss they're feeling, I've gone through already. You know, by by having to part with with what his music meant to me. Do you think that um, that was like? Do you see that as like a necessary step kind of um, to addressing issues like like abuse, like from artists and and rabbis, like people that we revere, these sorts of things? Is revering them necessary? No, I'm saying like the process that you went through of like kind of, um, you're saying like the the people are having difficulty letting go of him, Mm -hmm. right? like, do you think that that is like that process of letting go to the point of like, like you basically, you can sit, like you've used the word trafe, right? Like yeah. you consider a trafe. Like, so not only are you letting it go like logically or whatever, you're talking about letting it go emotionally, you know? Yeah. Um, do you feel like that is a step people need to take with these, with these artists, with these? Um, I think that the, biggest problem with people continuing to use Karl Bach's music and tell his stories and repeat his Torah. Um, the biggest problem that I have is, was summed up best by, by a, a friend of mine who said this anonymously to a, a rabbi who posted about it. Um, he said that, that when he hears Shlomo's music in shul, it has a serrated edge to it. The singing of his nigga, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this. A person, an abuse victim? Yeah. Um, not, n- not of Karlbach. Right, um, just an abuse just, victim. J- just an, an abuse victim. He says when he hears Karlbach and Shul, it, there's a serrated edge to it. It, 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 it. We accept, we more readily accept um, um, Shlomo than we accept what, what happened to you and care about what happened to you, sings his, his nigga. 
uh, it's a paraphrase. I'm forgetting the exact quote, but, but you know, there's like there's, they're saying like that the message is we care more about Kavach than what happened to you. Yeah, that 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 we can't let that they're saying we can't let his stuff go because it means so much to to us. But there are people who suffer every time they hear his music, mm. whether they're victims of his or or not, and you know, regardless of the significance of of, Car- of Karlbach to many people, and I understand that there was, that for him, you know, he was the foundation and in their introduction to Judaism. In fact, there was a woman who, who wrote in a comment on, on the Shema's article um, that she was very well aware of Shlomo's abuse because she saw her friend be harassed by Karlbach shortly before she herself was harassed by Karlbach. But the fact is, she would not know about Judaism if it weren't for him. And I can't imagine what that must feel like for her when she hears his music. Because on the one hand, it's the thing that led to all of her religious inspiration. But on the other hand, it's also undoubtedly tainted by, by you know, who he was and what he did. But as a society, I think that, that it's very important, um, if Me Too has taught us nothing, that we can't afford to have tolerance for anything that an abuser is or does. Um, there's no changing the fact that he was an inspiration to thousands, right? That already happened. And I'm very glad that those people are connected to, to Judaism. Um, but the fact is we have a very serious problem in the from community and in the world in general, but particularly in the from community that we come up with so many excuses for not caring about sexual abuse. Um, you it's interesting because a lot of people, and we, and I think this was the discussion actually in the group, was people being like, well, I do care about abuse. I just don't think, like in the words of the person who was, I think, discussing this with you, was like, I shouldn't, why do I have to throw it out? out his, why does throwing out his CDs in this, like mean that I don't, like I care about sexual abuse? And why does keeping his CDs mean I don't care about sexual abuse? Right, so, so I think this is going to get, political fast, but <laughs> Tanahasi Coates has his famous article, The Case for Reparations, published in 2014 in The Atlantic. And, um, you know, he, he lays out the case for, for reparations for black slavery in this country, uh, or black enslavement is the term he would use. Um, and after I read that, I was blown away. And I started watching lectures uh, of his, you know, he would go to colleges and he would give lectures about the case for reparations. And invariably somebody would, would ask him like, do you think the check is going to make a difference? Like, do you think receiving money is going to make a difference? What what, what do you think the recipients are going to do with that money? And, you know, in a really sarcastic way. Right. And his answer always was, listen, whether the reparations takes the form of a check or not, I don't know. We'll, We'll have to figure that out. Right. But it will mean something that if every single person in this country whose ancestor was enslaved in this country received a check, regardless of the size of that check, you know, regardless of what they do with that check, regardless of whether check is the disbursement that will help the most people, right? If this country manages to mail a check to every single one of those people, it will mean that this country has 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 reckoned with itself has actually sat down mm. and 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 uh, and and you know wrestled with the fact of its of its 
inglorious past and 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 the abuses that it perpetrated on 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 a whole race of people you know so i i think that that you know him throwing out his cds uh he himself is not going to to necessarily change anything and you know that you know whether he cares about abuse or not um um is not really the point the point is on a societal level i'll know that we as a community care more about sexual abuse than than you know any of our cultural touchstones or or icons when it becomes the norm to tell someone to stop singing Karlbach, right? So I hear what you're saying. So you're saying like that to you it's more of like a general indicator that we haven't it's so interesting because the Me Too campaign, like everyone there's like this word the reckoning, like we're reckoning with yeah. things like this we we haven't culturally reckoned with it in in the way that that um it seems like the secular world is starting to do more. Um, yeah. There's this there's this unwillingness to to just without any conditions, without any therefores, just say, yeah, Shlomo Karlbach was a sexual assaulter. He was a sexual abuser. Now maybe we have to talk about what to do about that. But you know, like there's always there's this element of, all right, are you happy now? You know, like like all right, I admitted that Shlomo Karlbach did it. Are you happy now? And I wanted to shut up, right? Mm. But it's interesting, like, because you, you, you're often speaking as an advocate, but, like, you're also a survivor. Like, mm-hmm. like, how does that make you feel as a survivor? It's, I mean, it's typical, you know. Um, I see it happen all the time with other abusers, with other victims. Um, you know, with the Me Too campaign, right? All right, did he have to get fired, you know? Did he really have to get fired? Aaron, he apologized. What's the big deal? You know? So he only did this. He only did that. Why are you why are you lumping harassment in with rape, right? There, there's this there's constantly these attempts to minimize, you know, the impact of 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 the damage abusers cause. But there's also this this concerted effort to minimize the responsibility that society in general has. Like there's this quote from 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 um, Abram Joshua Heschel that says something along the lines of, "In a free society, some are guilty, but all are responsible." Right? It, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, sexual abuse happens, and it's it's perpetrated in large part by people who feel that they have the power to get away with it. And one of the ways that they know they have the power to get away with it is because they look at the society around them and they see that other people are getting away with it, that, that, that society is making excuses for them, that society is refusing to, to depose them, particularly when the abusers are powerful. And they realize that, that, you know, that they could get away with it if they do it. And I feel that that's, that that's the case with Shlomo Karlbach is that, you know, we're clearly sending a message that, that, you know, sexual abuse is, is terrible, but we don't really want to get rid of Karlbach. Well, why not? I mean, you know, don't we, don't we want to make it clear to everybody now and in the future that we will have an absolute zero tolerance policy towards sexual abuse, that there's a very high price for it. And that if you're going to sexually abuse someone, you're going to pay it. Um, you know, we we shouldn't be bending over so far backwards to find ways to include sexual abusers 
in our culture, you know, and, and in our liturgical music, certainly, um, we should be finding ways to bend over backwards to accommodate the survivors who, who still find it so hard to come forward and still, you know, are, are blamed for, for the abuse that happens to them and, and, and still don't find the support that they need and still have to go to shul and listen to the music of, of a sexual abuser. I feel like we need like another hour. <laughs> we've uh, reached our time. I feel like a therapist. Like I'm like we've run out. Yeah, yeah. But um, no, thank you for sharing that. That's really powerful. And yeah, I'm thankful. I'm thankful actually that this came up so many times in the last few episodes. I just think it's interesting because I think like the creative and the religious communities now are reckoning with this question. Yeah. Like like separately and also to get like a now and so it's interesting to be in a place of like religious creativity and Karbach is like a, a, is really like one of the epitomes of like a person who was both um, yeah. a religious leader and, a, and an artistic uh, figure so I think we're dealing with it's it's like the, both of those connections like those personal identity connections are like tied up with him and yeah. I think that's really hard um I'm saying culturally to to deal right. with because it's like by definition a, a cultural icon is embedded you know so yeah that's what makes it so hard yeah thank you Asher so good to have you uh, is there should we uh, let's uh, what should we plug for you Zaka how can people find out about Zaka oh um, if you want to find out more about Zaka you could go uh, to facebook.com slash Zaka how do you spell it Z-A-A-K-A-H um, and, you know, follow what's going on with the Child Victims Act. We could always use the support. Um, we occasionally schedule action. So if you follow that page, you'll find out about our protests. Mm. And uh, just in general, just pay attention to the issue when you see it in the papers. Nice. And uh, I guess if they, they'll see your writing, how can they find your writing? I guess they'll follow you on Facebook or... Uh, you can follow me on Facebook. Uh, I don't have a page for myself, so just you know, look me up and send me a friend request. Awesome. Uh, or go to hareani.com, H-A-R-E-I-A-N-I.com. Awesome. So good to have you, brother. Yeah, it was good. It's good to be here. Awesome. We started off confused, but we made it through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, somehow, I feel bad for your post-production person. Uh, That's me. Oh, okay. I feel bad for you. <laughs> don't worry. I, I don't edit. We're going to have all of this. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, crap. All right. <laughs> all right, man. Thank you so much. Right. Thank you for listening to Hivria Cast. I'm Aladna Harai. If you'd like to hear more and read more of our work, you can follow us by going to hevria.com or facebook.com slash mag. We've been recording at the Kalal Studios in New York City, and the music that you're hearing is Voice Lessons by Darshan. Thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing and hearing from you again. <laughs>